hello everybody. Thank you for tuning in to The Girl, The Beard, and The Grim. Well, this is part two. We finally made it. Finally. Finally. We're, we're, we're here. We're doing part two. It's a thing. Hey, so guys, this is going to be part two to the Candyman story, aka the Dean Coral story, aka the weirdo from Houston. Is that a technical term? It is now. Okay. AKA the Pied Piper also. Yes. But I almost think we're kind of past that because that was just the elementary school kids calling them that. Well, you know, I'm just saying it, it's a thing. Let me just lay the scene out for y'all right now, guys. We are podcasting in the dark. I have a Bath and Body Works Wicked Apple Candle going. It is caramely, apple delicious up in here. And then we also have an oil lamp. So Cause it, it smells delicious and spooky. And spooky. I'm feeling all the spooky vibes this week, and I'm ready for the weekend. What about you? Yes, I, I'm i ready for the weekend. I am ready for what will hopefully be our next episode after this one. Uh, I'm ready for a lot of things. So I'm ready to get the show on the road. But are you ready for Christmas? Because I went to Petco today. It is not that time yet. Eat the turkey <laughs> first. I don't. I will say that every year if I have to. But what if people eat turkey on Christmas? <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> it's not Christmas season until after we've already had Thanksgiving. Um, they were putting the Santa dog toys out at Petco, and I wanted to buy them all. But you know that people get really upset if you try to overthrow spooky season with Thanksgiving stuff or Christmas stuff. I feel the same way about Christmas before Thanksgiving. Like those people that are like, I don't celebrate Halloween. I celebrate harvest. Those are the people I like to punch. Maybe that, we shouldn't punch people. Well, you know, maybe they shouldn't be dumb. Mm. Because Halloween is wonderful and you don't need to celebrate the harvest. We're not farmers anymore. And if you are a farmer out there listening, I'm glad at what you do. But just celebrate Halloween. It's not that hard. <laughs> Give people candy. <laughs> Actually, I think tomorrow, tomorrow's the 28th. Is that the Day of the Dead? I can never say the... Dia de los Muertos? Yes, I, I believe it is the 28th know. this year. So, to our people that are out there listening, if you celebrate that. Congratulations on uh, that celebration. Congratu is that right? Congratulations? Well... Happy, happy Dia de los Muertos. I don't know. Yes, I hope that your family comes to visit you in a not spooky way and you can celebrate the life of that person. That's pretty there much what go. it's about. Yeah. See, mm -hmm. I, that's the thing is, I, I know the, the traditions of the holiday. I know what oh, it's about. Oh, that movie Coco, it's so good. I know. But I know what the tradition is about, but I don't know, like, is, the, is it a phrase of, like, you know, have a happy... Dia de los Muertos, is it? Yeah, because that's how you help that person um, be able to pass on to the afterlife. Okay, but, but I mean, like, it's, it's, in Spanish, is it, do you use, like, Feliz Dia de los Muertos, or is it, like, the I whole? I think so, actually. I've okay, seen it. yeah. because I, I don't know if it's, like, the whole U.S. versus U.K., you know, Happy Christmas versus Merry Christmas thing. Happy Christmas, Harry. <laughs> well, I, I just, I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, okay. we are off on a tangent. We are Time off. to rain it back in, back to the murder and torture. Okay, so <laughs> where we left off last episode was me letting you know a little bit about Dean Coral, his background, not a little bit. There was a lot of information there. Yeah. And then we ended 
with um letting you know like how he committed the murders like what tools and devices and things yeah. that he used the the apparent floor plan that he had not floor plan what's the word i want to use here the uh outline that he had mm-hmm. for his repeated crimes yes and we also introduced you to his his first accomplice uh david right but at the end you hoodwinked us with a cliffhanger of a second accomplice yes so we will get there um because there does there is a second accomplice in the future and so let's just go ahead and start off so um i'm not going to give you all 28 victim stories because we don't need to hear 28 stories of torture and rape and murder. It, um, it's but a I little am, repetitive after the first one or two. I am going to give you um, the most high-profile high ones out of um, out of his victims. The ones that actually had his families or their families looking for them, filing police reports and things like that. Gotcha. Remember, he did... Uh, kind of prey on streetwalkers and transients and things as well, so, and those not tend to, to not have people look for them, unfortunately. Yeah. So, but not to downplay what they went through. Absolutely. But there's just not as much information out there about them. So, uh, Dean Corll's first known victim it was an 18 year old college freshman named Jeffrey Cohen. We're gonna go with that. It's K O N E N. K O N E N. Conan. Conan? On, right. on September 25th, 1970, Conan vanished while hitchhiking with another student from the University of Texas to his parents' home in Houston. He was dropped off alone at the corner of uh, West Thimer Road. Please don't kill me. <laughs> and South Boss Road. And this was near the uptown area of Houston. Okay. They believe that Coral likely offered uh, Conan a lift to his home, which Conan evidently accepted. And at the time of Conan's disappearance, Coral lived in an apartment on Yorktown Street, um, which was very near that intersection of Ross and uh, Westheimer. Okay. Um, about the time of Conan's murder, Brooke actually interrupted Coral in the act of sexually assaulting um, two other teenage boys. That Coral had strapped to a four-post bed. Gross. Horrible. I, so... I mean, just to put this out there, Dean Coral is a horrible human being, and may he rot in hell. Yeah, but here's the question. So, who picked up this victim that was hitchhiking from UT to Houston? Coral. And took him back to his house. Okay, but you say Brooks walked in on <clears throat> Coral. Yes, and the reason why there's kind of a little bit of a a time gap. There. A time gap there is because um, we're going to come back to Conan later. I'm I'm really going to need you to timeline. I some know, of this stuff. I know. It's kind of hard because there's just so much research out there. Yeah. So I'm trying to keep it all in order, but a lot of it, like between the books and what's online, it jumps back and forth to when the bodies were discovered and when the murders happened. You so know, there's going to be between 1970 and 1973. These are when these horrific things happened. Gotcha. So I'm going to try to go through it kind of fast. So I apologize to anybody if I don't make any sense. If you're like me and you get lost easily, you may have to listen more than once. 
Yes. Okay. So David Brooks, he ends up interrupting Dean in the act with two other teenage boys. Okay. Okay. And neither of these are Conan. Neither of these are Conan. Okay. Um, he, um, obviously was not, it was not of consent. Okay. Yeah. Um, because of this, Coral ended up promising Brooks a car in return for his silence. Brooks accepted the offer. And this is when Coral bought him the green Chevrolet Corvette that I mentioned in episode one. Okay. Where I said that that was one of the cars that ended up being... Like, well, he used the Ecoline and the GTX. And then... And then later ended up using this Corvette as well. Right. So, Brooks walks in on him, who he's had an intimate relationship with for money on and off over the years. Mm-hmm. Brooks sees him assaulting someone, even though at this point Brooks Two had... Boys. had Brooks had helped with the kidnappings or no? Um, yes. Okay. Like, I'm... I'm Maybe it's just me. I feel like if you help somebody kidnap somebody, you don't really get a say in what they do with that person after that fact. Like, you're still just as guilty. Mm-hmm. Coral later told, told Brooks that he did end up going back and killing those two boys as well. And uh, because of that, he offered Brooks an additional $200 to keep quiet, um, which I kind of looked I looked that up in my research, and they're estimating that that would be just over $1,300 in uh, U.S. currency as of 2020. So with still not a lot of money for me to be quiet. Yeah, <laughs> it's like he didn't he didn't offer him a whole lot of hush money, but no. he already kind of bought him a car. So, right. so remember, Conan was September of 1970. So now on December 13th in 1970, Brooks ended up helping lure two 14 year old Spring Branch youths named James Glass and Danny Yates away from a religious rally that was held in the Houston Heights area near Coral's Yorktown apartment. Okay. Glass was an acquaintance of Brooks who, at Brooks' behest, I got that from a book. <laughs> at his behest. At his behest. Had previously visited Coral's address. So, meaning he had come with Brooks to visit Coral's apartment yeah. at one point because that just kind of seemed to be the hangout for all these um, younger teenage guys, boys. Yeah. Um, both of the boys were tied to opposite sides of Coral's torture board, and subsequently they were raped, strangled, and they ended up being buried in the boat shed, um, that I also mentioned in episode one, that he was renting. Gotcha. He, um, had actually just recently rented this boat shed at the time, and he had only been renting it for about a month, um, and they were the first two victims to be buried there. Gotcha. When the bodies were later discovered, an electrical cord with alligator clips attached to each end was buried alongside Yates's body. One of the boys. An, an electrical cord with alligator clips. Mm-hmm. So when you say tortured, they were possibly electrocuted. Yes. And actually, if anybody hasn't looked yet, there is a um, picture that I put on our Instagram that shows the torture board, and at the end of it, you do see what appears to look like a automobile battery. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's out there then. Mm-hmm. And I will have more pictures to come to because there are several out there. I'm sorry if you can hear the ambulance. I promise they're not coming for us. This time. <laughs> this time. <laughs> Six weeks after this double murder of Glass and Yates, on January 30th, 1971, Brooks and Coral were encountered 
by two more teenage brothers, Donald and Jerry. Walking towards their parents' home, the Waldrop, that was their last name, brothers, had been driven to a friend's home by their father with plans to discuss forming a bowling league and had began walking home after learning their friend was not there. So they weren't able to call the father back to come pick them back up. Well, yeah, that's... Unless they were walking to go to a payphone. One or the other. And and So this is something that I I feel that we've touched on a little bit in the past, but it's something I feel the need to reiterate. Back then, you know, nobody had cell phones. Like, if, like, you didn't have a house phone, or if if you called somebody's house phone and they didn't answer, for all you knew, they were either not there or they they were there and they missed it. They were on the other side of the country. You never knew. But more importantly, I feel like a lot of these crimes were more possible back then for two reasons. One, people would just get into strangers' cars. Oh, yeah. There's like a whole documentary out there about the 70s, and it's like the police would have to get on the radio and stuff and beg people to stop hitchhiking. Yeah. Like out in Hollywood and stuff where there was tons of murders in the 70s. Well, and not just the (laughs) hitchhiking. stop getting in cars with strangers. (laughs) Well, like, yeah, there's the hitchhiking. But on top of that, it's like, it's not even hitchhiking per se. You know, if some random, quote unquote, good Samaritan stops and goes, hey, do you need a ride? No, I'm good. That's that's all it takes. And more importantly, the second point I want to make is that people, like, if they weren't expecting company and someone knocked... They would just open the door. Mm-hmm. If you're not expecting anybody, don't open the door. Mm-hmm. Even when I'm expecting people, I don't open the door now. That's what we have doorbells with cameras for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Drop the stuff, go away. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel really bad for these brothers because they they were just trying to start a good old-fashioned bowling league. <laughs> and that was the and rage in the 70s. They were enticed into Dean's van and they were driven to his apartment um, and where ultimately they were raped, tortured, strangled, and then they were also found buried under that boat shed as well. Wow. Between March and May in 1971, Coral abducted and killed three more victims, all of whom, of whom lived in the Houston High area, and they were all buried towards the end rear of that rented boat shed. And like I said in episode one, I will have a picture of that, of them digging up um, and finding the bodies uh, under the boat shed. Okay. So now when you say a boat shed. It's really like, it's not that he had to like move boards or anything or not from what I understand in the pictures. Um, it really just looks like a shed with a dirt floor. Okay. Like a dirt floor shed. Well, mm-hmm. when I hear boat shed, I think of like something that's on a dock, mm-hmm. like a boathouse type of deal. So I'm like, how's he bearing? Like, is he? digging underwater how does that work you know that that's where my brain first went but 70s be wild and so it's it's just a it's like a shed that mm-hmm. they called it a boat shed because you would store a boat in it okay yeah. in each of these abductions uh david is known to have been a participant uh one of these victims was 15 year old randall harvey he was last seen by his family on the afternoon of march 9th and he was uh riding his bike towards oak forest um that is actually where he worked part-time as a gas station attendant Harvey was driven to Coral's Magnum Road apartment, so he's moved now. Okay. Because I also said that in episode one that he tended to move around, but he always remained in the same area. But he would kind Um, of just uh, apartment complex off. That way he wouldn't... 
in the same place for too long. Exactly. So he's now on Magnum Road. Um, and that's where he, um, he actually killed this victim, Harvey, with a single gunshot to the head. Um, it doesn't go into too much more detail about that, but I'm sure it wasn't just as simple as a gunshot. I'm sure there was also some torture right. involved as well, because that seems to really be what he enjoyed with yeah. his victims. So now I have another question. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is standing out to me now, now that we've talked about it a little bit. He raped, tortured, and murdered all of these people in apartments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no one ever thought, you know, that's a lot of, like, screaming and crying coming from the apartment next door. But remember, he kept them drugged. Um, He would make sure to mix pills and alcohol together and would basically just force them to keep taking that down. Well, okay, then let's, firstly, then I, I don't understand the torture then, because obviously, mm-hmm. no, either you're too drugged to feel the torture, or you're not drugged enough and you're going to scream. It's one or the other. Or look at, um, or more Dahmer. importantly. He liked to torture, but he liked to kill them first, or get them as close to death as possible before he started his torture as well. But he also had a house with a garage. He was in an apartment. Dahmer? Yeah, he moved around a lot too. He had apartments and townhomes and stuff like he there was I won't I can't do an episode I can't do episodes on Dahmer because I deep dived into him in twenty twenty. It's a little much. And it made me ill. Yeah, it's a little much. And um But okay, even then there was several times that the police were called from his neighbors that they were like, We hear a huge commotion going on and he would show up um, or the police would show up and he would somehow convince them because he would also pick up transient boys and things like that. Yeah. And he would convince them that it's just a boy that he picked up. He's lost. He doesn't know where he is. And like one of the one of the boys was like, I, I don't live here. Please save me. Like, he's not my boyfriend. He's not anything. And the police were like, Psh, you're just a couple of gay guys. We're not going to help you. Yeah. It, it was wild. Yeah. But OK, here's the other thing, though. So, you live in an apartment, it's the 70s, you're in Houston, you murder somebody with a twenty two. Mm-hmm. you say it was a twenty two pistol? Yeah. That's, Which he could have taken them out. That still takes to enough. To one of his burial sites and done it. it Maybe. Because that's the other thing is, it's like, that to me would make enough noise that somebody would call somebody. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, there were three victims um, in between that time. So, the other two was 13-year-old uh, David. And 16-year-old Gregory, they were abducted and killed together on the same day on the afternoon of May 29th, 1971. Wow. As had been the case with the parents of the other victims, both sets of parents launched into a frantic search for their sons. And um, so these, you know, these are involved being the last three that I just discussed. One of the youths who voluntarily offered to distribute posters to uh, that the parents had printed um, of the whereabouts was 15-year-old Elmer Henley. Remember that name? Yeah. So Elmer Henley is actually who ends up becoming the second accomplice. And he was actually a lifelong friend of the 13-year-old uh, David Hilgist. Okay. That was his last name. So weird 
Yeah, a little Does bit. Does this kind of give you a little bit of an idea of what might happen in the future? A little bit, but here, here's the next thing. So, okay. At this point, there's some multiple people went missing at or around the same... Two, two went missing on the same date. Mm-hmm. At this point, are the police putting together that there's like a serial killer on the loose, that there's something going on? Nothing. The people can't see you shaking your head. Why? <laughs> <laughs> this is all audio. For those of you who cannot see, she is she was very quietly shaking her head no. With my lips pierced and everything. Pursed. Pursed. I was like, nope. Apparently the police in Houston in the seventies were not that. I'm telling into you, it. we could do a whole series on just seventies crimes. Yeah. How did our parents make it alive? <laughs> How do any of us exist? How did people live through the 70s? Oh, wow. my goodness. Okay. Which, if y'all would like a series on 70s crimes, please uh, comment on the Instagram and other social medias and let us know. Yeah, so Elmer Henley, lifelong friend, friend of one of the victims, he would go around with the reward posters, um, and he has you know, been recorded as saying that he would go around reassuring uh, the parents of the anybody that was looking for him, that they would be like, there's got to be an innocent explanation for the boy's absences. Now, also, if you remember in episode one, I had stated that he would make his victims, Dean would make the victims phone, write, what combination of the two. Yeah. Um, and basically tell the parents, I've, I've ran away. Don't worry about me. Don't come looking for me. And so, when you go to the police of that information, they're going to take that as, well, your son is blatantly saying that he ran away. That he's run away and he's doing his they're own thing. They're not going to put any kind of time into, or resource, resources into looking for runaways. They just yeah. don't. Well, they still and, don't to this day. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because e- even in, like in some of the other cases we've talked about, even when it doesn't seem like they're a runaway, the cops go, well, they're, they're, they probably ran away. Yep. On August 17, 1971, Coral and Brooks ended up encountering uh, another acquaintance of David's, 17-year-old Reuben Hanley. Hanny. Hanny. Hanny? Hanny? Um, anyway, so he was walking home from a movie theater in Houston, and Brooks persuaded Haney to attend a party at an address um, at Coral's now new apartment on San Felipe Street. So this is at least apartment number three. Apartment number three, and this is only, this isn't even a year into the crimes. We're like 11 months in. Firstly, how do you not have, like, a lease that you have to keep? It's the 70s. They were wilding. Apparently. They were like, you got $200 and a heart? Okay, cool. You can leave this place. Month to month. Let's go. <laughs> month to month. Oh, my gosh. Never mind. We won't get into this story right yeah, now. Yeah, let's focus <laughs> focus on the story we're working on. Um, Haney, or Haney, I'm sorry, agreed and was taken to Coral's home where he was strangled, killed, and he was also one of the victims found under the boat shed. So, so far, it seems like a lot of them are in the boat shed. Yes. Um, in September 1971, so this is now a year into the crimes, right. Coral moved into yet another apartment in the Houston High area. Apartment number four. Wow. Brooks later stated that he assisted Coral in the abduction and murder of two more youths during this time uh, while Coral resided at that address. 
including one youth who was killed just before Wayne Henley came into the picture. Firstly, we're talking... Which is Elmer, by the way. Sorry. Wayne Henley is yeah. Elmer. You oh, okay. The, um, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. I was like, sure, yeah, Wayne. I don't remember. Now, at this point, so he's... It, we've been just about a year that the crime's been going on, just a little over. Mm-hmm. How many victims are we up to at this point? Probably what? That's... Further, you said at least seven or eight to ten, somewhere in there. Seven. Seven. Yeah. So seven victims in about a year. Twenty-eight across three. So obviously he accelerated. Or, no, I think we're at nine, actually. Okay, nine. Yeah. It seems like he accelerated then. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. What let, what happens from here? Okay, so it was also later stated by Brooks that um, Coral took a long time to torture before he killed. Or one of the youths. He actually ended up keeping them alive for four days before he actually murdered them. Okay. Um, the identity of both of these victims during this time period is actually unknown. Brooks has never stated who they are or um, Henley. Either. So, do we eventually find out or are they still unknown? They're still unknown. Wow, okay. 50 years and you still don't know who all he murdered. That is insane. Alrighty, so now we're going to get into how Elmer Henley became an accomplice. That's what I'm curious about, because at this point, he was a friend of a victim mm -hmm. and helped make posters and all that. How do you go from, my friend is missing, presumed dead, to, I'm going to help a psycho serial killer who abducts, rapes, tortures, and then kills people? Yeah. So, um, in winter 1971, so this was just after... The last two victims were murdered. The ones right. that we um, don't have their names. Okay. Brooks introduced Henley to Coral. Henley likely was Laurel Lured. Lured. I'm never going to say it right. Lured. I'm too country. Um, he was taken to Coral's address to be an intended victim. Re okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. However, uh, Dean evidently decided the youth was would make a great accomplice and offered him the same fee that he had offered to Brooks, which was $200 for any boy that he could bring to his apartment. He also informed Henley that he happened to be involved in a white slavery ring operating out of Dallas. Excuse me, what? So I get the feeling that this is like his cover for... Uh, if you don't help me, I'm going to sell you into white slavery. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, they talked about something similar. I believe it was in Criminal Minds, but it's it's something that's a, it's a real thing. There are people out there, there are men that will kidnap a woman and convince her to be his wife, living girlfriend, mistress, spouse, whatever, on the premise that the quote-unquote company will take out her family if she doesn't comply. Hmm. And so it's this thought that, well, I'm against this whole group of people. It's not just a one-on-one -on -one thing. And so that's how they end up staying with this person that is either abusive or manipulative or whatever because they have a fear of their family and friends being hurt by, quote-unquote, the company. So that's that's kind of the mentality behind that. Hmm. Um, Henley ended up stating, um, 
later that he actually ignored Dean's offer for quite a while. But um, by early 1972, he decided to accept the offer because he and his family were in dire financial circumstances. And back then, 200 bucks, I mean, it's a decent chunk of money. Mm-hmm. That's That's like a month's rent. Henley said that the first abduction he participated in occurred during the time Coral resided at uh, yet another apartment on Schuler Street, an address he had moved to in February 1972. So this is apartment number five? At least? <laughs> At least. Five or six. Jesus. Um, I can't imagine paying that many deposits. <laughs> Brooks also uh, did cooperate and verify that Henley became involved with the abductions while Coral resided at this address, um, and that he had occupied immediately. I'm sorry, that he had was involved in abductions while Coral resided at the address prior to Schuler Street. So gotcha. he actually stated that Henley, his account wasn't actually correct. So there was a little bit of he said he said there a little bit. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, in if Henley's statement is to be believed, the victim was abducted from Heights in February or early March 1972. Um, in the statement Henley gave to police following his arrest, the youth stated he and Coral picked up a boy at the corner of 11th and Studewood and lured him back to Dean's home on the promise of smoking some marijuana with the pair. Um, once they were at Dean's residence using a ruse, he, um, that he and Dean had prepared Henley would then, uh, cuff his own hands behind his back, free himself with a key hidden in his back pocket. And then they would dupe the youth doing into doing the same thing. Um, and then that's when Dean would come up and he would end up bind him, bind the victim, gag the victim. Um, and then Henley would then leave. And right. Dean would continue on with what he wanted to do to them. Right. Um, and it was that one time that Henley believed, or that Coral had told Henley that he was getting these boys and he was actually selling them into a sexual slavery ring. And that's why um, Henley would never see the boys again. Right. That he wasn't killing them, he was selling them. Which, I mean, again just kind of feeds into that lie and it's like well considering that you know the human trafficking is still a thing now mm-hmm. it's reasonable but definitely not as dark as what was going on so one month later in march of 1972 henley brooks and coral encountered an 18 year old acquaintance of henley's named frank he was leaving a restaurant on yale street where he worked um henley called to hank over uh, called Hank over to Dean's van, invited the youth to drink a beer and smoke some marijuana with the trio at Dean's apartment. Um, Frank agreed, followed the trio to Dean's home in his own vehicle, his Rambler. Oh. Inside Dean's house, um, Frank smoked marijuana with the trio before picking up a pair of handcuffs Coral had left on his table in response coral pounced on frank pushed him onto the table and cuffed his hands behind his back henley later claimed that he did not know of dean's true intentions towards frank uh, when he persuaded his friend to accompany him to coral's home in a 2010 interview with henley he claimed to have attempted to persuade Dean not to assault and kill uh kill frank but once uh dean had made up his mind he had Brooks bound and gag him. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So at this point, Henley's figured out that he's not just selling him into slavery, and Coral has Brooks tie him up to keep him from get you know. Mm-hmm. Basically, can go anywhere or say anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, they ended up burying Frank's remains um, at the High Island Beach. Um, and this is where he actually made Henley dig and bury his body. Gotcha. So despite Henley starting to really see who Dean was um, and, and basically the reality of what he was doing, yeah, um, he ended up becoming more of an active participant than David. Um, he um, would bring in the most boys he seemed to be kind of moving up the ranks over david right. um and so actually in april of 1972 he assisted dean and brooks in the abduction of another 17 year old boy named mark scott um scott who was well known and uh to both henley and brooks excuse me was grabbed by force and fought furiously against attempts um by Dean to restrain him, even attempting to stab his attackers with a knife. However, Scott saw Henley pointing a pistol towards him, and according to Brooks, Scott put his hands up and gave up. He stopped fighting. Right. They tied him to the torture board, um, and he suffered the same fate as the other victims, rape, torture, strangulation, and he was buried at the High Island Beach as well. Gotcha. Um, Brooks ended up stating that Henley actually became more uh, sadistic in his participation in the murders um, and that when when Dean moved to this latest apartment on Schuler Street, that that just seemed to blow up Henley, like in his participation. Right. Uh, before he vacated uh, or before Dean vacated the Schuler Street apartment in June of that year. So he was only there from April to June. <laughs> Wow. Um, Henley assisted Dean and Brooks in the abduction uh, and murder of two more youths named Billy and Johnny. Um, in Brooks's confession later, he stated that Brooke, that both youths were tied to Dean's bed, and after their torture and rape, Henley manually strangled both of them and then shouted, Hey, Johnny, and then shot them both in the forehead. Wow. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. And both of those victims were also buried at the High Island Beach. Um, during this time, um, they also, this is before they also left Shula Street, um, they convinced another male, 19-year-old Billy uh, Ridinger, Ridinger to come to the house. Um, he was tied to the plywood torture board. Um, he was abused by Coral. Brooks later claimed that he persuaded Coral to allow um, allow the victim to be released, and then the youth was allowed to leave the residence on another occasion. Yeah, so he ended up leaving. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself with my notes. <laughs> okay, back up. Time out. So, so, so he was tortured and abused. Right. Okay. Uh, David said in his confession that that Coral allowed Brooks to set him free. So Why? I don't know. I mean, that's... So, up until this point, everyone you've abducted, you've tortured, raped, and then killed. 
Yes. And now you let someone go. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming, is is this the beginning of the end, or is there... Well, he he ends up paying a price for this. Um, Dean convinces Henley to knock uh, David unconscious as he entered the house shortly after this. Um, Dean then tied David to his bed, assaulted the youth repeatedly um, before releasing him. And despite the assault, Brooks continued to assist Dean in the abduct- abductions of the victims. So... At the that kid point, they got released. Didn't go to the police. I guess not. Wow. Okay. On on. Which I mean, I if you're that scared. I mean, I guess yeah, but still, that's just that one's an out there one. So after the Schuler Street residence, he ends up moving into an apartment at the Westcott Towers. Um, in the summer of 1972, he's known to kill two more victims at this residence: 17-year-old Steve Sickman. Um, he was leaving a party held in the area shortly before midnight. Um, the youth was savage, savagely bludgeoned um, in the chest with a blunt instrument before he was strangled, and then he was buried at the boat shed. Gotcha. Approximately one one month later, in August of 1972, 19-year-old Roy Bunton was abducted while walking um, to his job in uh, as an assistant in the Houston uh, Houston shoe store. Uh, Bunton was gagged with a section of Turkish towels. Um, well, because, you know, regular <laughs> then, towels won't do. They have to be Turkish. Um, they were shoved in his mouth, and then adhesive tape was placed over that. He was shot twice in the head and buried at the boat shed. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, the sad part is, is in Henley and Brooks's confessions later on, they actually don't, neither one of them named him as a victim. Um, and they actually didn't put him in Dean Coral's like, list of victims until 2011. Even though he was found in the boat shed? Yes. What, do they think just someone else might have killed him back then and put him there? I don't know. There wasn't a whole lot of information on that. Okay. I thought that was kind of strange to you, but, you know, I guess science. But, yeah, science, of course. Yeah. Maybe the MO was just off enough that they... Maybe, or they were just really going by what Henley and Brooks were saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, on October of 1972, Henley and Brooks encountered two height teenagers named Wally... Jay and Richard Hembry. They were walking to Hembry's home um, when they uh, were enticed to get into Brooks's Corvette and drive to Coral's apartment. Um, told him that there was going to be some big party, lots of marijuana. Um, one of the boys, uh, Wally Jay, he's actually ended up phoning his mother. Um, and like when he knew that something was going down when he yeah. was at Dean's house. Um, and as soon as it picked up, he was like, he screamed mom into the receiver and then they cut the cord. The following morning, Hembry was accidentally shot in the mouth by Henley. Accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how they came up with it being an accident. So that sounds like, you know, like when you see a little kid punch somebody on purpose. Mm-hmm. But they know that they'll get in less trouble if they say it was an accident. And here's the thing. The bullet exited through his neck and it didn't kill him. I mean. So several hours later in the day, 
they ended up strangling him to death and they had already strangled to death his friend as well. Um, and they actually buried him in a common grave type, um, but it was still in the uh, boat shed, but it was actually on top of other victims' bodies because they had run out of space. So, and here's the thing. Yeah, like I, so to to touch on that, the fact that, you know, he got shot in the mouth and didn't die. People think that the head and neck area is like really delicate and that, you know, if you get shot in or around the head neck area, you will instantly die. And that's not always the case. There are tons of cases where people have been shot in the head and go on to live completely normal lives. So sometime in that same month, um, they abducted another 18-year-old victim. Um, he was known um, to Dean and Henley. His name was Willard Branch. Um, he disappeared while he was hitchhiking from Mount Pleasant to Houston. Okay. Um, they um, gagged him, strangled him, and buried his body in the boat shed. And then on November 15th, they abducted 19-year-old height youth named Richard Kepner. Um, he disappeared while he was on his way to a phone booth to make a call. Kempner was strangled and buried at the High Island Beach. Um, altogether, at least 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered just between February and November of 1972. So on January of 1973, Coral moved to yet another apartment on Ritt Road. Um, in the Spring Branch District of Houston. Within two weeks of moving to this address, he had killed his next victim, 17-year-old Joseph Lyles. Uh, Lyles was also a friend of Dean and David's. Um, he had lived on Anton Drive. Um, it was actually the same road that David uh, lived on as well. Um, on March 7th, Coral vacated this apartment and ended up moving to 2020 Lamar Drive, um, which is actually his father's old home in Pasadena, Texas. And then that's, this is going to be a big thing too. That's why it's, they tell you the whole address. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so once he moves to 2020 Lamar Drive, no known victims were killed between February 1st and June 4th of 1973. At all. At all. Just like that. Just like that. Uh, it seemed like he had a cooling off period. Um, some reports say that he was sick during this time, and that's why he had inactivity. Um, but he also, um, at that time, Henley had temporarily moved away to Mount Pleasant, um, and he was trying to get away from Dean. So that's what they also equate is like the trio was kind of breaking up. Yeah. And so he was trying to do what he could to get the boys back. Right. Because he knew he couldn't do it alone. Yeah. If he had been doing this alone, he would have been caught a long time ago. Yeah, well, not only that, I mean, so, we've already established that he worked a full-time job with a power company, power plant. So, he works a full-time job, he murders and tortures and rapes and kidnaps people, and he moves every other month to a new place. The amount of time that just moving and working takes, mm -hmm. like, I can't imagine moving to a new apartment every couple months. The amount of work that would just go into that. 
Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot going on here. So, once June got around, uh, Dean's rate of killings increased dramatically. Um, both Henley and Brooks later testified that the increase of level of the brutality of the murders was, like, at an all-time high. Like, the torture was off the charts. Gotcha. So, that cooling-off period allowed him to reset, mm-hmm. but it also made him... I guess angrier or mm-hmm. more more violent. Henley described it um, as being a bloodlust for killing and torture. All right, then that's a good way to put it. Also, around this time, um, Dean came to the boys and said, "We need a new boy due to the fact that he would appear restless. He seemed to be smoking more cigarettes and making more um, just overall just twitchy." Is how they described him as well. Right. Um, like he could just itch himself out of his skin, and he felt like he needed a third accomplice to help bring in more victims faster. Gotcha. Um, on uh, in June, Henley and Coral abducted a 15 year old boy named William Ray Lawrence. The youth was last seen alive by his father on 31st Street in Houston. After three days of abuse and torture. Lawrence was strangled before being uh, buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Um, Less than two weeks later, they abducted another victim, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn, um, and he was strangled and also buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. So, now were those... I don't know if you have... You may get to this later, but do you have final counts on how many bodies there were at each burial location, or... So far, I have five at the boat shed and five at High Island Beach. Um, that's what I had. That was okay. That was just between February and November of nineteen seventy-two. Okay. Um, I did not think to go back and count the other ones. I know they say there's twenty-eight bodies that they find altogether in total. Yeah. So, but it seems like he he. Once the boat shed got full, they started using High Island. Once High Island started to become too hot, they moved to using Sam Rayburn, unless that happened to be more convenient for some reason. Um, so in July of 1973, Henley began attending classes at the Coaches Driving School in Bel Air, Texas, um, where he became acquainted with a 15-year-old uh, youth named Homer Garcia. The following day, Garcia phoned his mother to say he would be spending the night with a friend. Henley took him to Dean's house. He was shot and left to bleed to death in Dean's bathtub before he was buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Five days later, on July 12th, they abducted another boy, 17-year-old John Stellers of Orange County, Texas. Um, He was bound, shot to death, and buried at High Island Beach. Okay, so they're still using High Island Beach. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, So the the location at, with Sam Rayburn is supposedly there's a cabin out there that was owned by Dean Coral's father as well. Okay. And so that's why he would take them out there. Gotcha. Um, on In July 1973, Brooks ended up marrying his pregnant fiance, who we didn't even know that he had one. Because he's still been getting dirty with Dean. Yeah. Disease. That's all I'm saying. Uh-huh. Um, so during this time, Henley temporarily became Dean's sole 
um, accomplice to obtain victims and help with the murders. Right. Um, they ended up getting three more victims out of the Houston Heights areas between July 19th and the 25th. So six days. Six days they get three victims. That's that's a lot. Yeah. You can't tell me. Just like Brooke said. Henley became more sadistic about it. I'm like, you can't tell me you weren't enjoying this. Well, not only that, <laughs> that like that borders on like a spree killer. Yeah, absolutely. Like you know, normally spree killers are one or two days and they're done, you know, three days maybe. But, you know, I mean this is borderline spree killer territory of, you know, three victims in six days. Get this. One of those three victims is the brother of a previous victim, Billy. One of the Billies from 1972. Wow. It was a 15-year-old boy named Michael. He was last seen by his family on July 19th on his way to get a haircut. He was strangled to death and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. The other two victims were Charles uh, Cobble and Marty Jones. They were abducted together on the afternoon of July 25th. Henley himself later buried the uh, bodies of both of them in the boat shed. So, can you, I, I can only imagine, let's say you have a child, go missing. Alright, you don't know what happened to them, they just go missing. And then a year later, your other child goes missing. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. And then, I guess during the- Especially because you don't have any answers yet yeah. on the first one. Yeah, and then after that- you find out that there's this guy that's been living in Houston just murdering kids and no one did anything because nobody could figure it out. Mm-hmm. On August 3rd, 1973, Dean killed his last victim, 13-year-old boy from the South Houston area named James Dramala. How do you spell it? <laughs> uh, D-R-E-Y-M-A-L-A. Yeah, what you said. Okay. Um, James was abducted by Brooks and Coral. So Brooks is back by this time. Um, While riding his bike in the Pasadena area, he was driven to the Lamar uh, residence. Upon, um, he was was going out to collect glass bottles to resell. That's what he was out doing when he was abducted. Um, so when they get back to Dean's house, he's tied to the torture board, raped, tortured, strangled, um, by a cord before being buried in the boat shed. Brooks later described, uh, James as being a very small blonde boy for whom he had bought pizza, a pizza for, and whose company he had spent 45 minutes with before he was attacked and killed. Wow. Like they bring him there, they order him a pizza, they sit down, have a little chat. And kill him. That is insanity. Horrible. I still just don't understand out of all of this. Like I said in the first episode, I always try to look for what drives people to do this. Yeah. And I still haven't really figured it out with this man. I don't understand what triggers triggers him all of a sudden to start killing. Like to me, I just feel like it's so out of the blue. Like he meets David, he's paying him for sex right and then he's like you know what i also would like to my real fantasy is to been to kill and torture people well and i think it, it 
it goes back to mental illness based on how he was acting when, you know, the boys were trying to find new victims, you know, how it was, he was very fidgety and antsy, like, that just stands out to me as very classic, you know, there, there's something else going on than just, you know, the normal, regular crazy people, like, he's clinically messed up. Yeah. Okay, so the last victim was killed on August 3rd. Okay. On the evening of August 7th, 1973, Henley was age 17 at this time. Um, he invited 19-year-old uh, Timothy Cordell to attend a party at Dean's Pasadena residence. So this is the 2020 Lamar Street house still. Right. Um, Timothy, he was a casual acquaintance of Dean. He was intended to be his next victim. Right. He accepted the invitation. Okay. Okay. Brooks was not present at this time, but um, Henley, Timothy, they show up at Dean's house where they apparently sniffed some paint fumes, drank some alcohol until midnight before leaving the house to purchase sandwiches. Because, of course. I mean, sounds like a good night, right? Henley and uh, Timothy then drove back to Houston Heights, and uh, Timothy had parked his vehicle close to Henley's home. Henley exited the vehicle and, uh, hearing a commotion across the street, he ended up um, going over to see what it was. It ended up coming from another friend's house, Rhonda Williams. Um, he had walked towards her home to see what was going on. It looked like, apparently, Rhonda was being beaten to death by her drunken father. Um, and so they get the father off of her and then they convince Rhonda to come back to, um, Dean's house with him. Okay. You with me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just processing it all. So, so now they've got a female involved. This is the first female that we're hearing about. Yeah. Which okay. is definitely way outside of the typical MO. At approximately 3 a.m. on the morning of August 8th, 1973, Henley and Timothy, accompanied by Rhonda, returned to uh, Dean's residence. Uh, Dean was furious that Henley had brought a girl to, ha a girl to his house, <laughs> telling him that it was private and that he has ruined everything. Henley explained that Williams had argued with her father that evening and did not wish to return home. Uh, Dean appeared to calm down and offered the... Uh, the trio, some beer and marijuana. The three teenagers began drinking and smoking marijuana, um, and Henley and uh, Jane, I'm sorry, Timothy, end up going back out, sniffing some more paint fumes, while Dean watched very intently as Henley states. After about two hours, around 5 a.m., uh, Rhonda, Timothy, and Henley, they all end up passing out. Which is strange, because normally by then, somebody would have died. Mm -hmm. um, Henley ended up awaking a few hours later to find himself laying on his stomach, and Dean was snapping handcuffs onto his wrist. His mouth had been taped shut, and his ankles had been bound together. Um, he looked over and noticed that the other two youths, uh, Rhonda and Timothy, were laying beside him in the bed. They were also securely bound with nylon rope. They had been gagged, and they were laying face down on the floor, and they had also been stripped naked. 
So at this point, it, lo- it looks like he's getting ready to murder all three of them. Mm-hmm. Coral ended up removing the gag from Henley. Henley protested in vain against uh, Dean, basically being like, you need to get off me. Like, you're not about to kill me. I've seen you do this. <laughs> I know it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dean ends up stating, you know, you brought her here. You started this. You made this wrong. Now I have to kill all of you. You blew it by bringing a girl here. He's like, he ended up shouting, I'm going to kill you all. But first, I'm going to have my fun with you. Then he repeatedly kicked... um Williams, Timothy Williams in the chest before lifting Henley to his feet, dragging him to the kitchen and placing a 22 caliber pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. Henley calmed Dean, promising to participate in the torture and murder of uh, the other two youths that were in the house. Um, He's like, if you please release me, I will help you. They apparently sat down and had a 30 minute discussion about this and uh, Dean ended up agreeing and he untied Henley and unbound his legs. He then carried um, the other two victims into his bedroom. He tied them to opposite ends of the torture board. Um, Timothy was on his stomach, and Rhonda was on her back. Okay. Okay. Uh, Coral then handed Henley a hunting knife and ordered him to cut away um, Rhonda's clothes, insisting that while he would rape and kill Curly while he did that. So, Timothy. Gotcha. Timothy is curly, by the way. I figured. <laughs> um, Henley uh, would like would do likewise to Williams. He said, "Once you get her clothes off, you need to rape her, just like I'm going to rape him." Right. Henley began cutting away her clothes as Dean undressed and began to assault and torture Curly. Both Curly and Williams had awakened by this point and come out of their, you know, paint sniffing <laughs> coma. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it was stated that Timothy began shaking aggressively and shouting, stop, trying to get the gag out of his mouth, you know, get, get the ropes loose, anything that he could to get away. Um, Williams had to begin to lift her head up and look around. And she, Henley said that at one point he looked at her and she still had the gag on, but her eyes were just like, is this really happening? Yeah. Like, I can't believe this is happening to me. Henley then asked Dean whether he might like to take Timothy into another room to be alone with him while he assaulted and tortured him. Uh, Dean ignored him, and Henley then grabbed his pistol, shouting, You've gone too far, Dean! And as Coral (laughs) went to go grab the gun back, Henley stated, I can't let this go any longer. I can't. You're killing all of my friends. And uh, Coral ended up getting in Henley's face, and he said, What are you going to do? Are you going to kill me, Wayne? Henley stepped back, took a few, like, took a few deep breaths, stepped back. Dean is still yelling at him. You're not going to do it. You're a pussy. You're never going to shoot me. Henley then fired at Coral, hitting him in the forehead. The bullet failed to fully penetrate Dean's skull. He then continued to lurch towards Henley, um, where Henley ended up shooting two more rounds, hitting Coral in the left shoulder. Coral then ran out of the room, hitting the wall of the hallway, and Henley ended up firing three additional bullets into his lower back and shoulder as Coral slid down the wall of the hallway outside the room where the two other teenagers were bound. Coral died where he had, where he fell in the hallway and his naked body was laying face towards the wall. 
So, wow. There, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. So just like that, Henley killed Coral. He, yep. he realized, at, I guess snapped out of it, that it had gone too far. Mm-hmm. And, like, that was that. Wow. Yeah. Um, Henley ended up uh, recalling later that after he shot him, the sole thought he had in his moments immediately after killing Coral um, was that Dean would have actually been proud of the way that he had behaved during the confrontation. Of course. Spoken like a true psychopath. Yeah. He stated that Dean had always trained him and Brooks to react quickly and forcefully, and that's exactly what he had done. After he shot Coral, Henley released uh, the other two victims from the torture board and all three teenagers dressed, discussed what had just happened. (laughs) And Henley suggested that um, Curly and Williams, they should just leave. Um, To which Curly replied, no, we need to call the police. We're staying right here. Henley agreed and looked up the number for the Pasadena Police Department and Coral's telephone directory. (laughs) I like that little part there. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't call 911. You're just a non-emergency number. Mm-hmm. So around 8.28 a.m. on August 8th, 1973, Henley placed the call to the Pasadena Police Department. Um, his call was answered by an operator named Velma. In this call, um, Henley ended up blurting out to the operator as soon as she answered, Y'all better come here right now. I've just killed a man. Henley gave the address to the operator as 2020 Lamar Drive, Pasadena. As um, Curly and Williams and Henley waited, they actually went on onto the porch and just sat down and waited for the police to arrive. Um, Henley mentioned to Curly that he had done that, killed by shooting four or five times, meaning that Henley had killed victims. Yeah. Minutes later, the uh, Pasadena police patrol car arrived. The three teenagers were sitting on the porch. The officer noted that the twenty-two caliber pistol was on the driveway near the trio. Henley told the officer that he was the individual who made the call and indicated that uh, Coral's body was inside the house. After uh, taking the pistol and placing all three youths in the patrol car with handcuffs, the officer entered uh, the home and discovered Coral's body inside the hallway. Um... He, the officer ended up returning to the car and read Henley his Miranda rights. Um, in response, Henley shouted over him, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get this off my chest. Yeah. Meaning? Like, I guess he was just so done with it. He didn't care if he was going to get in trouble. It just, it needed to stop. It had to stop. Yeah. Um, he ended up telling, or I'm sorry, Curly ended up telling detectives when he was questioned that Henley had confessed to him that if you weren't my friend, I would have gotten $200 for you. Wow. Mm. So once uh, Henley was in custody, he, you know, he's questioned and he ends up recounting all events of the previous evening in the morning, explaining that he had shot Dean in self-defense. The statements given by... Uh, the other two victims, Curly and Williams, they ended up co- corroborating Haley's account, and the detective questioning Henley believed um, that it actually was indeed self-defense. Um, but while questioning, they um, 
claimed that Coral had threatened him that morning and that he shouted that he had killed several boys. Hanley explained that actually for the last three years, uh, Dean Brooks and himself had actually been killing boys and that Henley and Brooks, they were actually the accomplices that helped um, get all of the victims to Dean. Right. Um, he explained that Dean um, would rape and murder them. Um, and then Henley ended up giving a verbal statement stating that um, he had initially believed the boys that he had abducted were actually being sold into the Dallas-based um, organization for homosexuals, sodomy, and uh, white slavery. So, all that being in air quotes. All of it. Because <laughs> okay. I'm very confused by that whole thought process, but sure. Yeah, like I said, and I mentioned that before too, he really did think that, because he never saw the boys again, that he really was like selling them. And they right. were going to Dallas. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but he, he did say eventually he did learn that Dean was, uh, you know, killing them himself at first. And then Henley did admit that he later assisted Coral in several of the abductions and murders and that he actively participated in the torture mutilation of six or eight victims. He can't remember. Of course not. Um, he also led the police to where most of the victims had been buried, which was the Houston uh, boat shed. And then he let them know that others were buried at Lake Sam Rayburn, the High Island Beach, um, and that Dean had paid them $200 for each victims that he and Brooks uh, brought to Dean's apartment. Wow. The police actually didn't believe any of this at first. Why not? They thought that he was making all this up. They actually believed that Henley was making all this up and that he was actually the one that was killing all of the boys. I mean, I could see the theory. Mm -hmm. um, Henley stated that he was quite insistent that he was not by himself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so this is when they end up bringing... Um, end up bringing Brooks in and they're questioning him and um, they start going through uh, Coral's house. They find large hunting knives and rolls of clear plastic um, that they would use like, you know, painters, plastic, whatever they yeah. would put down. That's what they were rolling bodies up in a portable radio that was rigged with a pair of dry cells to give increased volume. Um, an electric motor uh, with loose wires attached, eight pairs of handcuffs, a number of dildos, thin glass tubes, and links of rope of all sizes. Wow. Yes. They also take his Ecoline van that was parked in the driveway. Um, they take that in and start searching that and taking prints and everything. The rear uh, windows of the van were sealed by opaque blue curtains um in the rear of the vehicle police found rope a swatch of beige rug covered in soil stains a wooden crate with air holes drilled in on the sides a pegboard wall inside of the rear van that were rigged with several rings and hooks other wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides um and 
there was also more wooden crates with holes drilled in um, in Coral's backyard as well. Wow. Oh, and inside all of the crates were several strands of human hair. All right, then. Yes. So they end up, um, you know, then they got to go out and search for these victims. Right. Brooks and Henley start uh, talking to the police, telling them where they were. Henley was the most uh, one that ended up accompanying the police to the boat shed, um, where he claimed that was where most of the victims would be found um, inside the boat shed police found stolen half strip car a child's bike a large iron drum water containers two stacks of lime a large plastic bag full of teenage boys clothing wow um so by this time if you haven't already put it together henley and brooks they're in prison <laughs> yeah <laughs> awaiting, obviously awaiting trial um so two prison trustees um, end up going out with them, and they all begin digging um, in underneath the boat shed, and they soon uncover the body of the uh, last victim, the young, blonde-haired teenage boy. Um, he was laying on his side. He was encased in clear plastic wrap. He was buried beneath a layer of lime. Um, the police end up, you know, going through more. They keep uncovering and unearthing remains and more and more victims in various stages of decomposition. Wow. Um, most of the bodies were always wrapped in a thick, clear plastic sheeting. Some victims had been shot while others were strangled, and the ligatures um, would still would always be wrapped around their necks. He never cut them away. So even after he strangled them, he would leave whatever he strangled them with on them? Yep. All right. Um, all victims had appeared to be sodomized. Um, most victims bore evidence of other sexual torture. Pubic hairs had been plucked out. Genitals had been chewed on. Objects had been inserted into their rectums. And glass rods had been inserted into other <laughs> holes on a male that I'm not going to say. Oh, boy. Um, and all of it was left in them. That's terrifying. Um, if he used cloth rags to gag them, they would all still be found inserted into the victim's mouth with the adhesive tape still uh, wrapped around their faces um, and mouth. So, let's just take a deep breath. That is <laughs> heavy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, that is, uh, there's that part. Let's move on to the... Um, to this little part here. So by May of 1974, 21 of the 28 victims had been fully identified um, with all but four of the youths having either lived in or had close connection to Houston Heights. Gotcha. Okay. Um, it wasn't until two more were identified in 1983 and then again in 1985, one of whom Richard uh, Kepner um, he lived in Houston Heights. The other was the Willard Branch. He lived in the Oak Forest District. What does that get us at? Slash 21. Yeah. So I know, and a couple more weren't identified till, like, in the last 10 years. So, but there are still two that are completely unknown as to who they are. Yes. Mm -hmm. So 26 to 28 have been identified. Mm -hmm. Two still remain John Doe's. Mm -hmm. after almost 50 years. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely insane. I know. 
On August 13th, um, and this is in 1974, a grand jury convened in the Harris County uh, to hear the evidence against Henley and Brooks. The first witnesses to testify were uh, Timothy and Rhonda, who were at the house when uh, Henley shot Dean. Um, They testified to the events of August 7th and 8th, leading to the death of Coral. Another witness who testified to his experience at the hands of Dean was Billy uh, Ringer. He's the 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 man that they let let go. After listening to over six hours of testimony from various people on August 14th, the next day, a jury initially uh, indicted Henley on three counts of murder and Brooks on one count. Bell for each of them was set at $100,000. Wow. The district attorney initially requested that Henley go under a psychiatric uh, evaluation to determine whether he was mentally competent to stand trial. But his attorney, Charles Medler, opposed the decision, stating that the move would violate Henley's constitutional rights. Now, when I read that the first time... (laughs) To me, I find that strange because most lawyers are trying to do anything to get their client out of standing trial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Like to me, that sounds like he had a really bad lawyer. I feel like that's. I feel like it's more against his constitutional rights to not allow him to be evaluated. Yeah, exactly. That would be my thought process. But I guess you know it could be that. I mean, heck, depending on who his lawyer was and whether or not it, like, if it was like a public defender. He might have been like, no, I'm making sure this this kid stands trial. I don't care if he ends up being completely innocent. The fact is, just being involved in any of this is a mess. By the time the grand jury completed the investigation, Henley um, was actually up to six counts of murders instead of three, and Brooks was up to four instead of one. Um, Henley was also not charged with the death of Dean, which prosecutors ruled in September of 1974 as being self-defense. Gotcha. Um, yes. So Henley, his trial was, uh, was brought to trial in San Antonio, July 1st, 1974. He was charged, uh, ended up being charged with six counts of murders between 1972, um, and July of 1973. They called dozens of witnesses, including, um, you know, the people that were at the home, the gentleman that got away. Right. Um, he testified, uh, or the... The Billy that got the the one that they led away, he ended up testifying that Dean's home. He was tied to the torture board, torture board, and assaulted repeatedly um, by Dean before he was released. Right. I'm trying to see if there's anything else. I mean, we go through. I mean, it's just crazy because, like, the trial for Henley went on for years, like. He wasn't, um, like, it went on for about four years the first time. Right. I have that right. Yeah. So he wasn't initially indicted on anything until December of 1978. Okay. I'm sorry. I was about to say, wait a take because that doesn't make sense. No, no, no. No, that's right. But it, I'm sorry, it was July of 1978. Okay. Okay. Um... They sentenced Henley. They ended up finding him guilty on all, all six counts of murder. And then in August of 1978, that's when he went in and had his sentencing. And he received 99 years for each of those <laughs> murders, totaling 
594 years is what he was given, and he was transferred to Huntsville to begin his sentence. Now, is he still living? I'll have to look that up, because I actually didn't do that. All right, well, that will be... But up a, until 2011, he was. That will be something we'll I mean, he should be. He should be, because in 1973, he was only 17 years old. Well, yeah, but prison's a rough place. You yeah, know? That's true. I mean, it, it's, it's a mess in there. So, he ended up having um, a retrial, or his first appeal, um, and then they decided to uphold his sentencing, um, but he... Like, he was upheld for his sentencing, but he was re-awarded a new sentencing trial. Okay. Okay, and that was in December of 1978. So his retrial began in 1979 in June, um, and the second trial was held in Corpus Christi this time. He was, again, represented by the same lawyers. Um, Which sounds like a bad idea, considering what job they did in the first one. They, his lawyers tried to state that, you know, some of the written statements were inadmissible. However, Judge uh, Kennedy ruled that the written statements given by Henley on August 9th of 1973 are admissible evidence. Retrial lasted nine days. Henley's attorneys again calling no defense witnesses and again attacking the credibility of Henley's written confession. The defense also contended the evidence provided by the state belonged to Dean Coral, not Henley. On July, I'm sorry, June 27th, 1979, the jury deliberated for over two hours, reaching a verdict. Henley was again convicted um, of the six murders, and he was still sentenced again to 99 years per per, uh, murder. So here's my question. Um, Now, granted, not that it matters, because either way, you know, 99 years for each murder is still... Longer than he'll ever live, but if you've served for, you know, at this point, let's say four years in prison, and you get reconvicted with the same amount of years, does your sentence start over? Is that a thing? Is it from conviction date or original incarceration date? I have no idea. I've looked that up. Curious. But... Um, Brooks stood trial in 1975, so his trial was, you know, like three years before Henley ever even went to trial. Yeah. Um, He had been indicted on four counts of murder um, from December 1970 to June 1973. Um, So he, when he actually ended up going to trial, though, it was only with one charge of murder, and that was for the murder of 15-year-old William Lawrence. Okay. Um, his attorney basically argued that Brooks had did not commit any murders and that he just attempted to keep Dean happy um, and that he should be taken down to a lesser degree um, and that Henley was actually the one that was the more ac- active participant um, in the actual killings. So what happened to Brooks at his trial? So the district attorney ends up coming out and and he was like, this defendant was totally in on these killings. Like, there's no doubt about that. And even if he maybe really didn't commit any, they still considered him as a cheerleader, if nothing else. That's how they rephrased him with quotations. Right. Um, and so he was like, just the fact that he was there, he knew what was going on. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. 
Um, his trial only lasted one week. A jury deliberated for 90 minutes before they reached a verdict, found him guilty of Lawrence's murder, um, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. It stated that Brooke showed no emotion at this sentence, um, although his wife burst into tears. Uh, Brooks also appealed his sentence, uh, contending that the signed confessions used against him were taken without um, him being informed of his legal rights. Uh, but his appeal was uh, dismissed in 1979. And that's... That's about that. That's about that. Oh, I do have an update here. I'm sorry. I did write it down. So Henley is uh, serving a life sentence in Anderson County, Texas at the Mark Michael unit. Um, he was up for, he could apply for parole in 1980, apparently, but it was denied. His next eligible parole is 2025. He's gotcha. still alive. Brooks served his life sentence at the Terrell unit in Rashawn, Rasharon, Texas. He died of COVID-19 at a Galveston hospital in May of 2020 at the age of 65. Wow. That... Can't, can't say I'm not happy about that. I mean, yeah, but I I wish Dean would have been able to have his day in court. Yeah, fry him. So put the sponge on his head. Right. Put the metal bowl on it. The metal bowl. <laughs> it's, it's an electrode, but okay. <laughs> so I know the one thing that everyone was waiting to hear about, and you kind of spoiled the surprise on it, but uh, you know we said that our murderer was murdered by someone else so uh look there was so much information to go through there's my a lot. brain hurts this this could have probably been split into two episodes as well <laughs> there, this, there could have been part three here part part, part one should have been longer because well, there's a lot to unpack here you live you learn but i hope everybody enjoyed it is a lot to unpack with this one a lot um, I, I tried to keep heavy. it as clean as possible. I could have gone into more gruesome details, but I particularly don't like to get into a lot of that. I want to be as respectful to the victim and their families. If, um, you know, if any of their family members are still living, you know, as much as possible. Yeah. Well, and especially with something like this, it's a very gruesome crime. There's a lot to it. It's very heavy. As far as the subject matter. So, but, uh, you did kind of screw the pooch on the surprise of, you know, the murderer getting murdered. <gasps> You're so mean to me. Only a little bit. Only so. a little bit. Anyways, I really hope you enjoy this rabbit hole that we went down. I will, um, upload some, uh, more pictures on our Instagram so you can take a look. Um, like I said, the torture board is, um, is up on Instagram already along with a picture of Dean. Um, but I'll get some pictures of Brooks and Henley on there as well. And the boat shed pictures of the bodies, body parts. <laughs> yeah. So that being said, uh, I believe, I believe you and I discussed this. We're still going to try to have an episode before Halloween. Yes. For Yes, we should, we should have something coming out. Either Saturday before Halloween or the day of Halloween. So that's Sunday. So Sunday, yeah. So we want to keep the spooky season rolling as long as we can. And then uh, after that, it will officially be fall time going into November. 
which I know it's technically officially fall, but I don't care. That point will be officially fall for me. And uh, we can start focusing on some fall time crime. Mm-hmm. That could be a thing. Something. We'll have to figure it is, out. Is there like a pumpkin spice killer? Or like a... A daylight savings time murder. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know if there's any fall-themed crime out there, you know? I'm sure there's something. We'll figure it out. Yeah, the autumn assaulter, the, you know. <laughs> the gourd something. Yeah. Something. <laughs> I'm just going to stop now. Fail. My brain's fried. I love y'all. I'm so glad that you're here and listening with us. And thank you for listening to The Girl, The Beard, and The Grim. Y'all have a good one. <laughs>